Now, I'll tell you something interesting. Someone went to court in British Columbia because the law prohibits private health care other than things that are not covered by the public system. For example, eye care and dental care. But otherwise, it is illegal to operate a private clinic and therefore illegal to access it. So someone went to court saying this, this violates my charter right of life, liberty and security of the person. If I am on a wait list for n number of weeks, then my charter right is being violated. The British Columbia Courts of Appeal agreed that there was a right of, uh, I mean, violation of constitutional right happening here, but that the violation was permitted in the interest of fundamental justice. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. 
Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Darshan Maharaja. He is based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, He's been living there for about 20 years, originally from India. And over the last three or four years, Darshan has been writing on a number of issues in Canada and researching them. You can find his writing on his website at darshanmaharaja.ca. I'll include the link in our show notes. He also has an audio podcast called Our Canadian Journey. And I'm excited to learn from Darshan today about Canada's Medical Assistance in Dying program uh, that is highly controversial. Um, Darshan has been researching this extensively. And a little context for our interview today, uh, I go into different interviews with different levels of background knowledge on the guest and the topic. Sometimes I go in knowing a lot, sometimes I go in knowing very little, but I usually try to do a little preparation. I had planned to do some preparation for today's episode, but some life circumstances got in the way. So I'm kind of going in blind, but I think that that might work to our advantage because I am going to approach this with beginner's mind and ask all of those questions that uh, many of you probably want to ask as well if you're like me and you haven't really looked into MAID very much. Um, What I do know about the program has, has certainly brought up some ethical concerns. Um, And so I'm excited to start with a foundation and uh, allow our guest today, Darshan, to really explain the background of this and then open up the discussion for the ethical, philosophical, moral issues uh, that Canada's MADE program brings up. So, so glad to have you here, Darshan. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. Okay. So, um, Tell us, you said you wanted to start off with a background on Canadian healthcare systems to lay a foundation for us to understand how the assisted dying approach grew in Canada. And also the legal part. Uh, that is uh, the two areas that have the maximum impact on this. Now, just as you have your Bill of Rights in the US, uh, we have our Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada. And uh, Uh, Section 7 gives the right or acknowledges the right, more accurately, uh, to life, liberty, and uh, security of the person. And Section 15 is uh, equality before the law. So this has been a uh, long-standing struggle. A lot of people used to uh, advocate that right to die should be there. And uh, back in 1993, the Supreme Court uh, said that it's, it doesn't fall within the Section 7 definition of life, liberty, and uh, security of the person. Then uh, in 2015, in another case known as Carter, uh, the Supreme Court reversed the earlier stance and uh, included that as uh, being covered by Section 7 for uh, life and security of person. 
And then after that, there have been various decisions uh, at lower levels in the provinces, which expanded the uh, eligibility for assisted dying to people whose uh, death was not uh, reasonably foreseeable and to people who uh, are suffering solely from mental illness. Their reason for requesting assisted dying would be solely uh, mental illness. And that uh, final decision on mental illness was not appealed by the federal government. It was a decision in uh, Quebec and then they chose not to appeal it. So that itself is a bone of contention as to why the government did not seek uh, guidance from the Supreme Court on this. And uh, on the healthcare side, uh, we have uh, solely a government-run system. Now, previously, when I said this, a lot of people came back saying that uh, we don't have one healthcare system because each province runs its own healthcare system. Regardless of that small difference, basically, it's a government-run system. And like you expect in a socialist system to have, there is rationing of the product. So what happens is that a lot of people are on waiting lists. And uh, that length of uh, wait keeps increasing year by year. Even before the pandemic, uh, the specialist treatment, the average uh, wait time was almost 21 weeks. And then with the closures in the pandemic, etc., it went north of 26 weeks. There are provinces where it's as long as 65 weeks. So you are waiting for 15 months on average to receive specialist treatment. Things like hip replacement, it's not uncommon to wait for two or three years. So with that, the uh, first of all, the medical condition worsens and uh, the quality of life takes a hit. At that point, if someone gets frustrated and says, you know what, let me just die, then they would be approved in 90 days. So there is, as you said, ethical angle to this. The entity, namely the government, which is in charge of providing health care, if it fails in its duty, then can it say that it is right for the affected person to choose to die? It in my view, it just gives them an escape hatch. So these are the issues. Unfortunately, in our uh, mainstream media, they are not getting discussed. Okay, just in the last few minutes, you've said so much that I want to ask about. So let, let me recap. You said it was in 1993, the Supreme Court said that no, the right to die is not included in the pursuit of life and liberty. Um can I ask back then, who was pushing for the right to die? Who are the advocacy groups? Or This typically comes via someone who is an actual applicant or someone who is seeking to access assisted dying. Then there will be activist groups. Currently, uh, Dying with Dignity Canada is a major, major uh, uh, group advocating for uh, expansion of this policy. Actually, they want to make it applicable to children as young as 12. Whoa. So, so yeah, there is, a, there is a big debate going on there because one needs to be an adult 
to make decisions of certain importance. But in Canada, we have a concept of mature minor. Typically, uh, minors who are above the age of 14, they are deemed, and again, this has to be, it's not blanket, it has to be in the uh, opinion of a physician or a medical professional that this particular minor individual is mentally capable of making a decision in this matter. And then they can receive medical treatment. Now, I can see the practical benefit of this. Let's say a child gets into some kind of an injury and then they are rushed to hospital and they must be uh, given treatment right away and there is no time to get in touch with the parent. Maybe they tried and the parent wasn't available, whatever. Then if the child is mentally mature enough, then they can give consent to receive that medical treatment. But the problem is now we have included death in the definition of medical treatment. It's a healthcare choice. Okay, I have so many questions. So, um, <laughs> it just, it it's very upsetting to me as a psychotherapist because, you know, I've, I've studied developmental psychology and there's, there's no such thing really, in my view, as a mature minor. Now, there are Minors who are gifted, like I was one of those kids, right? I gifted, so you can have a high IQ, but you can't, um, just because a kid is gifted in some way doesn't mean that they bypass the normal developmental trajectories. In fact, in some ways, like there's, we have this concept of twice exceptional. It means kids or anyone really who is both gifted and also impaired in some way. So like, ADHD or high-functioning autism mixed with high IQ could be that. So for those of us who are kind of these outliers where, you know, we're in the 99th percentile of, you know, certain cognitive abilities, but then we're, you know, in the 14th percentile of, of more kind of normal skills, you know, those are the kids that get labeled, oh, you're so mature, right? But I see in therapy, they're struggling with really basic self-care and emotion regulation. So just you know, and that's just one uh, <laughs> one little argument that I could make against this concept of a mature minor. Another thing is that that, that I've witnessed in therapy is that um, oftentimes it's it's the quote unquote mature kids that are are mature for the wrong reasons. They've been parentified. Like for example, um, you know, in a situation where uh, there is a contentious divorce. And one of the children ended up in sort of a parental role toward their siblings and maybe even toward their parent, an emotionally immature or emotionally dysregulated parent or a depressed parent can end up intentionally or not putting their kid in a position of having to be mature before they're ready. Um, and so sometimes it's the kids who seem so mature that actually need the most help in other ways. They still need, and they still need time and room to grow up. And then you know who else labels kids mature? Finally, this is my last argument on, on that subject. Pedophiles, right? It's, it's people who groom kids. I mean, how many stories have we heard of 30-year-old men saying to 14-year-old girls, oh, you're so mature. I thought you were 18, right? That is seductive language. 
and I'm not saying that that's what these doctors are intending to do to these kids, but just it just gets me riled up to hear this idea of the mature minor. And I know that's just one little tangent, but I had to say something. But if you'll allow, allow me to back up, I, I want to make sure to uh, ask you more about a few of the things you've already said. So, so there have been people going back to the 90s who have been um, advocating that people, patients should have a right to die. Um, you said that the Supreme Court reversed their 1993 decision in 2015, 17, 15, 15. Okay. Um, and you say Dying with Dignity Canada is a major organization. Now, I'm curious, in your estimation, is this something that is sort of um, made to look like it's coming from the patients? But do you feel like it's actually coming from... Who, who who does it look like this is coming from? Who do, to the public and who who is it actually who's actually driving this? Because you kind of made it seem like we have reason to believe that um that it's the overrun healthcare system going, oh, we can't help these people. We don't have the resources to help the people, so let's just let let a bunch of them die. I mean, <laughs> what's really going on there? See, my layman's understanding is that in order to take a matter to court, you need at least one individual who has what they call locus standi. That is, they have a stake in the matter. Otherwise, if you are just advocating for certain policy, you cannot take the judiciary route. It has to be a political route. So you need to find a person who has locus standi and then make that into a case, then the court can focus on the circumstances of the case and all the other arguments can be brought to bear from both sides, and then the court decides. So it's not like either this or that, it's a combination of both the actual cases, and these are people who genuinely wish to end their lives. And broadly speaking, in Canadian society, there is a... Uh, an agreement at a broad level, barring a very small minority, that there are times when someone who is near the end of their lives, suffering from an incurable disease, and uh, who is not expected to live for long, it may be days or weeks, then instead of you know insisting that they should suffer, give them a dignified exit on their terms. Now on this, there is a very broad agreement. It's only the expansion of this policy that is now creating all the controversy. And let me make this worse for you, because uh, the medical profession in the province of Quebec represented to the parliament that it should be made available to infants up to one year of age. Under what conditions? If they are born with uh, physical conditions that are uh, uh, insufferable. Now, that has to be an external judgment because the infant cannot convey that. Then it would be uh, well and proper to give them assisted dying. So my question to this was, with today's technology, you will know in advance that this child is going to be born with these uh, medical issues. And Canada has no law on abortion. So at any point that pregnancy can be terminated, 
as long as the mother wants it or mother to be wants it and uh, as long as the medical professionals assess that it is not going to risk her life that abortion is never uh, out of the picture so why would you let a child be born when you know that it's going to be so bad for the child that the child would need to be euthanized within days or weeks or months Yeah. then someone from the us pointed me to an organization they are uh, based in michigan i think where they are advocating for the parents right to hold their baby for at least one time and then they can let the baby die that i know that i am going to have a baby that's going to have so many physical and medical issues but my emotional desire is to hold my baby for some time before that baby is then euthanized So this is very complicated. You know, it's not like we can run an A/B test on that, right? It's not like we can have one group, or or can we? I don't know. Like one group of, let's say, mothers to be, who have been told at month two of their pregnancy that your baby has this genetic. defect that's going to cause all of these problems and they're never going to be able to do this and you're going to have to modify your life like that you know where you have one subset of mothers who find that out who have an abortion and the same mothers in the same conditions but you have a different subset that go through gestation birth hold their babies and then euthanize their babies and you compare which one had more painful grief like I, there's no way to test this theory there's no ethical way to test this theory i mean and abortion is a, another debate I, i did an episode on abortion and i i personally you know here in us it's a big debate right and i personally am pro choice um and i used to be pretty staunchly pro choice but over the last several years i've gotten to know more pro life people and just been able to see from their perspective which is why i invited my colleague robin atkins onto my show i believe that was episode 27 where we talked about abortion um just to hear how people think differently about this issue you know how someone can be intimately familiar with abortion and arrive at being pro choice or pro life i think it's important for people to understand from other perspectives so but in in canada it's not a debate in canada uh you're saying we you have the technology that a mother can know in advance whether her child is going to have some kind of genetic defect that's going to cause major quality of life issues and there are there are people who think that the best way for them to deal with their grief is to go through the entire process of pregnancy and then hold their child and then let their child die um either way either way there's a huge amount of grief can we know that the grief will be less in one situation or another and and can we use that as a justification for allowing a human nervous system to develop to varying degrees you know what is the, what is the harm theoretically to the to the unborn child or to the newborn of you know terminating a pregnancy when the nervous system is developed to 8 or 12 weeks versus killing a baby 
that's two months old. I mean, these are just horrifying questions to even be asking. Um, And like, I, I get it because I can't imagine what it would be like to find out that your baby has, I mean, actually, do you have any examples of the types of conditions that babies might actually have that would um, cause this to be an option for them in the eyes of the law? What kind of quality of life impairment are we looking at? This was just proposed. Yeah, if I remember correctly, back in October or thereabouts at a hearing in the parliament. So this is currently being debated in Canada? Yeah, it's, it's being debated. But as you said, these, these ethical uh, issues are many. And one would expect in a government-run healthcare system, or 10 of them, if you want to see each province as separate, but they are all government-run. Ultimately, uh, it will be a, a matter about money. Now, what happened was when euthanasia was legalized in, uh, in Canada, the Supreme Court gave its judgment in 2015 and uh, said to the parliament that uh, you have one year to make this law. So they were all in a rush. And they made this law. It came into effect in 2016. And by January 2017, a report comes out uh, on our national broadcaster, Canada Broadcasting Corporation. That's another uh, issue in itself why we need a national broadcaster taxpayer funding. But uh, they uh, published this report. Someone had made a study uh, at a university in Alberta uh, saying that uh, providing assisted dying to terminally ill patients can help save uh, millions of dollars. So why one would need to uh, consider the financial savings instead of treating this as a standalone decision to be made, regardless of whether it costs us more or less, is an issue. This is, in my view, an ethical issue. You cannot bring talk about money in a discussion about whether someone should be provided assisted dying or not. But to the average person, you know, amounts like 35 million, range between 35 million to 136 million sounds very big. But when the government is spending $240 billion a year, it's increased now, on health care, then that $135 million is not a drop in the bucket. But this is how I think it was an attempt to uh, shape public opinion by saying, hey, you know what, we can save money by providing assisted dying to people. The problem is after that and after all the other provincial courts' uh, decisions, the regime has expanded so much uh, and every time there is a case, it blows up in the media. Like uh, veterans, when they are looking for some assistance, there is this lady in uh, Quebec, a retired, uh, I think, Canadian Army personnel. Uh, she her, her legs are disabled because of some injury on on uh, service and uh, she had been requesting for a chairlift for her home and the caseworker said if your life is so unbearable why don't you consider assisted dying even civilian disabled people have been uh, approved 
for assisted dying. There is this gentleman in uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, uh, Amir Farsood. His case became uh, widely talked about. Uh, he is disabled. He is on a disability assistance and the rooming house where he was living, it had been bought by someone and they wanted to demolish it and build something new there. So he was fearing that he would be on the streets. And as a disabled person, he didn't want that situation to arise. So he applied for assisted dying. He was approved by one physician. It requires two physicians' uh, approval. So he received the first one. Then the case got into the media and it blew up and someone set up a GoFundMe account for him. Got $68,000. So he has now decided not to die. Then there was another case of a young man. I think he's just about 18 or 20 or thereabouts. And uh, he was going blind and he applied for assisted dying and his mother found out. He was living with his mother and his mother found out and then it became another uh, big issue in the media. So then the young man uh, decided not to go for uh, assisted dying. But that's how it's going completely off the rails. The policy that was meant to provide a dignified uh, exit to terminally ill people who were short time away from their death and suffering horribly. It has now grown to cover anybody who is basically unhappy with their lives or their circumstances. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8 Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, there are major questions here of where do you draw the line? Just like the issue with, you know, abortion, where do you draw the line in in US with abortion laws at at what, you know, week of pregnancy for example, and then this, well, if if you're going to kill your child anyway, like can you hold them first? Is that a right? Where do you draw the line there? And then there's this where do you draw the line with okay, if someone is terminally ill, well, you know, how far away 
into the future is death or how are we defining pain and suffering or but when you talk about this being about money which it really sounds like it is you know i I remember i think it's one of jordan peterson's 12 rules for for life is uh do what is right not what is expedient and this is a situation where we're really talking about people viewing from this kind of heartless expedience lens and and i just want to kind of do a thought experiment and think about where that line of thinking leads if you follow it to its logical conclusion because if you're basing every public health decision on what saves money then you're essentially heading in the direction of eugenics of saying that only the people with the best genetics should live because everyone else is a burden on our healthcare system and then you have this highly regulated industry of um engineering fertility you know, engineering people's children, growing those children in labs, that's a thing, right? People are actually designing the technology right now to grow babies in artificial wombs. And, you know, yes, on the one hand, you can perfectly control that environment. It's your own little Petri dish to raise a baby in. Um, And you can make sure that that baby will not only be free of any major disabilities, they'll also have perfect vision. They'll also have the most ideal bone structure and the perfect height and metabolism and your favorite eye color. I mean, there's there's really no end to which we could, you know, that to which you could theoretically make an argument that we should be able to control all these variables. And then it's like, well, don't you know that people with excellent facial symmetry are more attractive, they're well-liked, they get better jobs. You know, this this child, uh, it looks like its nose is gonna be kind of crooked and its mouth is gonna be a little misshapen. And, you know, we have reason to think that your child is gonna be ugly. Um, and so maybe we should just kill it because, you know, it's not good for the economy to have a kid with an unattractive face. You know, they're gonna be less likely to get a good job. People aren't gonna like them, let's just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that this is where this line of thinking leads, and it sounds ridiculous, but it's, I mean, talk about a slippery slope. Well, that slippery slope will finally take you to the logical conclusion that you spoke about. And here is my logical conclusion. If the Supreme Court or any other court says that denying assisted dying to mentally health Uh, mental health issues uh, is an act of discrimination. Then I would say that denying assisted dying to anyone is an act of discrimination. Because an external agency cannot decide what I am supposed to be unhappy with. I don't even need to be unhappy. Today, if Darshan Maharaja says that I want to access assisted dying, why? No, no reason. Can they say no? And does it amount to discrimination? In my view, it does. The whole thing is, and I've been writing about this in my articles, that the issue of ending human life via human interaction, it is 
very deeply philosophical one and humans have been struggling to arrive at some answer for as long as maybe even before civilization began so for us to put it in a uh, in a tightly defined area of law is bound to create bad consequences because this is in the end a philosophical question and as time passes people can arrive at different conclusions uh, for example there was a time when it was considered perfectly acceptable to stone a woman to death when she was accused of adultery more than 2000 years ago now unfortunately it still exists in parts of the world but in most societies it would be seen as being barbaric so you know these are issues of deeply philosophical nature and our answers have been varying from time to time so the answer that we should have in our time uh, should not depend on the laws of our time they have to be uh, derived from ideas that are not dependent on time and that's where i think we have gone off the rails i agree that there's um what's legal and what what's ethical overlap but they're not always the same you know it's like a venn diagram there are things that are both legal and ethical there are things that are legal but not ethical and things that are ethical but not legal and personally my bias my philosophy of life is that when the law and ethics are at odds with each other you go with ethics and you confront the law you know that's why as of the date that we're recording this and I'll tell our audience, we're recording this on February 14th. So tomorrow, February, or I'm sorry, we're recording this February 13th. And tomorrow, February 14th, I'm going to go talk with lawmakers about uh, some of our laws that I find unethical um, and help them understand why those laws are worded in a way that prohibits ethical treatment. So that's that's my bias. And I, I agree that, <laughs> you know, we just get so caught up the average citizen just thinks that law and ethics are the same and if and if something's legal then it's fine but these are important questions for us to grapple with and and it seems like it's kind of part of a bigger theme that i'm noticing with culture at large and i'm sure there's a lot of overlap between canadian and u.s culture um, especially in this world where we're all connected um which is that it seems like we've forgotten the uncomfortable truth that the human condition is not pretty, um, that that suffering and struggling are actually part of what it is to be human, and that how we orient ourselves to struggling and suffering is essentially the the birthright, and perhaps you could say philosophically the obligation of every human being to figure out for themselves between the time they are born and the time that they die, right? And every religion offers a way of orienting to that, a way of thinking about life's inherent challenges. But it seems like we're trying to kind of engineer a way of suffering. And so our narratives about mental illness, for example, are that, you know, if, if you're suffering, if you're struggling, if you're not perfectly happy and content that you have a mental illness, 
And and it kind of teaches people this unrealistic, almost kind of phobic, fearful orientation to stress. And it's like we're not actually teaching people to orient to stress in a healthy way, that there's good stress and bad stress and that um, that you get a lot out of how you choose to handle those difficulties. Um, so with, you know, especially with the sort of epidemic that we're seeing of young people self-diagnosing on TikTok and uh, it being trendy to have some kind of a mental illness, whether that's gender dysphoria or Tourette's syndrome. I mean, that's not a mental illness. It's more, it's, it's a tick disorder, but you know, we've, we've seen TikTok Tourette's as a trend, right? Um, you know, we've seen young people thinking they have dissociative identity disorder because of something they saw on TikTok. And so we live in this age of kind of a lot of malingering, a lot of factitious disorder, a lot of, in, in psychology, we call it secondary gain of mental illness. And, um, and sort of a hypochondriasis as well, and an obsession with being unwell. And you can't separate discussion of that from discussion of social and cultural trends that um, disincentivize people from being well. You know, if you're going to create narratives about so-called social justice, for instance, where the more healthy and well-off and successful you are, the more you're seen as being an oppressor and of, you know, deserving of personal attacks. If that's the cultural climate, then of course you're going to be incentivized to find some kind of mental or physical disability with yourself, even if it means you make it up or you create it or you think yourself into it or you neglect yourself into that condition. So if, if we're creating a culture in which, first of all, in, in Canada, you have this massive underfunding in your healthcare system. And then you no. also have these, no? Stephanie, huh. we don't have a massive underfunding. That okay. is a very popular misconception in Canada. Great, let's clear it and up. And then I, I dove into the data from World Bank, OECD, Statistics Canada, and Canadian Institute of Health Information and wrote an article with all the links and charts and data saying this is not an underfunded system. Every time someone wants to do something about it, typically a politician, uh, he'll say, you know, we are lack. If, if they are in the opposition, they'll say we are lacking funding. And if they are in the government, they'll say we'll increase funding. Funding is not an issue. The issue is that it's a socialist system and therefore it is bound to malfunction. I grew up in a socialist country. Take it from me. All right, let's go there. Please explain. See. When it comes to uh, per capita funding, uh, Canada is consistently near the top, maybe number four or number five, if not higher, in funding on healthcare. Out of the total funding on healthcare, 30% comes from personal or private sources. So, for example, uh, the employer has a benefits plan and the employee can. Uh, you know, get their medical needs met from that plan or people pay out of pocket, etc., including uh, donations and all. 70% of our $300 billion spending on uh, healthcare is from the public funds. That is almost uh, 
it was more than 300 billion so we are looking at about 250 billion dollars a year of spending now if you look at it uh, over the period in 1975 our uh, funding was uh, 7.0% of gdp by 2019 it had grown to 11.6% of gdp I'm taking 2019 as my cutoff because after 2020, COVID threw all numbers out of, uh, you know, out of uh, range. They were extraordinary numbers. So in 2019, it grew to 11.6% of GDP, which means there was a 65% growth compared to the size of the GDP in spending on healthcare. Now, if we are spending roughly $1 out of every $8 on healthcare, it cannot be an underfunded system. <laughs> the only country that probably spends more than us is the United States. All right. So then what the heck is really going on? Because earlier you were describing that there are these incredibly long wait times. You said before the pandemic, it was 21 weeks. It's It's been more than half a year in some cases for people to receive the medical care that they need. And all the arguments in favor of made, well, a lot of them rest on this, it'll save us money. So if it's not a shortage of money, what the heck is going on here? It's a socialist system, Stephanie. It's bound to be malfunctioning. So the money is being spent on one hospital. We'll have maybe 20 VPs. and <laughs> We have someone sat down and made a study and wrote a book about it. It's available on Amazon. Uh, Population-wise, Canadian healthcare system has 10 times as many administrators as Germany. Now, Germany is a comparable country. It's G7 country with population that is broadly in the same range. There is a substantial difference, of course, about 20 million. But it's not a billion people country. So if I understand right? what you're saying correctly, the problem isn't about how much money there is. It's about how that money is being allocated. And you're saying that that money is being allocated disproportionately to bureaucracy instead yes. of actual healthcare providers providing care to their patients. Yes. yes. This is because uh, you may be familiar with the name of the author, Cyril Northcote Parkinson, who gave us Parkinson's law that work expands to fill the time available. He wrote an essay on bureaucracies and he showed, and he has a very humorous style of writing, he showed that the primary objective of a bureaucracy is to expand itself. Interesting. So the moment you made healthcare into a bureaucracy, which was a monopoly, this was inevitable. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. Someone went to court in British Columbia because the law prohibits uh, private health care other than things that are not covered by the public system. For example, eye care and dental care for people between the ages of 18 to 65 or 20 to 65, that is uh, not covered by the public system. So there is a private industry for that, similarly for dental. But otherwise, it is illegal to operate a private clinic and therefore illegal to access it. So someone went to court saying this, this violates my charter right of life, liberty and security of the person. 
if I am on a wait list for n number of weeks, then my charter right is being violated. The British Columbia Courts of Appeal agreed that there was a right of, uh, I mean, violation of constitutional right happening here, but that the violation was permitted in the interest of fundamental justice. So, if I'm in Canada and I go to school to become an optometrist and I want to run my own business that is a private pay optometry clinic, uh, I'm not allowed to? No, you are. Because eye care is not covered for a big chunk of the population. So you are. Oh, okay. But if it were... But whatever is covered by the uh, government uh, publicly funded system, that is, uh, you cannot practice privately. So then if I were a cardiologist, then I wouldn't be able to operate my own clinic. No. And in the wisdom of the court, that violation of constitutional right is permitted. But they cannot permit violation of constitutional right when it comes to assisted dying. You see the disparity here. If someone wants to die and the government says no, then it's a violation of uh, charter right and therefore must be remedied. Well, it's like this very libertarian philosophy about suicide, but a communist philosophy about healthcare. Sort of, yes. Now, the funny thing is, in our constitution, we have section 33, which is known as the notwithstanding clause, which says that regardless of all the rights and you know, whatever has been uh, acknowledged elsewhere, if a government thinks that this law should be made, then they can violate everybody's right and make that law. But the no. government is not choosing to use that option when it comes to assisted dying. Hmm. They are always in a hurry to come and bring the law in line with what the courts are demanding. All right, so the, so the government has a lot of power, but they kind of change the rules where sometimes they're authoritarian with their power, sometimes they're socialist, sometimes they're libertarian, just depending on how it suits whatever special interests are really driving all of this. Exactly. Okay. Even in Section 1 itself, of the constitution. It says all these rights are granted subject to reasonable limits. Now what is reasonable can be uh, resolved by a court. But the notwithstanding clause is basically saying that the government can say to hell with the court's opinion, we are doing this. In layman's language, that's what it is. If the Supreme Court of Canada says this has to be done, the government can say to hell with that. We are doing this. Only thing is there is a time limit of five years maximum. So in the meantime, the assumption being that there would be an election and if th this law was very unpopular, then that government would get voted out and the next government would remove the law. Okay, let's, let's get back to MAID. So mm -hmm. you had started off explaining... The, the history over the last uh, 30 years 
of the Supreme Court decisions and then how this has sort of evolved. So as of the time that we're recording this, you you informed me before we started recording that they were about to enact a change that would allow made for mental illness. And that was supposed to come about in March of 2023, but that has now been put off a year. Can you tell us more about that? That uh, legal change was actually made in 2021, in March 2021. But uh, the provision did not uh, come into effect immediately. There was a lot of back and forth between the House of Commons and the Senate. Now, our senators are not elected. They are appointed. But regardless, they are seen as a chamber of second sober thought. So there was a lot of back and forth and ultimately they struck a compromise saying we'll let the law be made but not make it effective immediately. We'll give a period of two years. That period of two years was getting over in March of 2023. But uh, all the negative press in the fall of 2022, various cases come into light and a lot of uh, hue and cry in the public. So the law minister said that he is going to table uh, uh, an amendment saying this should be extended for one more year, primarily because the profession of uh, psychiatrists collectively said that they uh, do not have the training and the protocols to uh, enable a psychiatrist to decide whether this person was uh, suitable for accessing assisted dying. Now, before that, uh, when they were testifying in front of the parliament, um, most of them had said that it is impossible to predict with uh, confidence as to whether a mental illness is irremediable. Thank goodness. That is the crux of the matter here because when it comes to physical ailment, you have objective criteria to go by. And while uh, the judgment of one doctor may differ from that of another, there is at least something. But when it comes to mental illness, uh, there is no way to say with certainty that this person's illness is irremediable. So in that case, how does the doctor make an assessment? So they wanted one yeah. year, which now is going to happen. But again, the law minister okay. has said very clearly on the record that he's just buying time. The law will come into effect next year. And so the justification for delaying it is that we need time to implement some systems for sort of being able to evaluate a patient and check some boxes to determine whether or not they qualify. And right now we don't have that. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you brought this up and I'm, I'm so glad that the psychologists and psychiatrists advocated for that. Um, you know, this, this brings up for me that I've, I've noticed that um, many people who come to me, especially when I, when I have patients in their twenties, especially Um, I've had many patients in their 20s who have been on psychiatric meds for 10 years or so, right? And so here's a a very common trajectory. A young woman gets her first period. She starts having her her period, right? And it's very painful. 
and she also has lots of acne. And so her doctor says, we can put you on birth control. It'll clear up your skin and, and you won't have painful periods anymore. So she goes for it, right? She's 12, 13 years old. Okay. Then she starts having depression and anxiety. Nobody ever asks her whether they're or discusses the possibility that the hormones she's taking combined with just going through the hormonal changes of puberty um, might have anything to do with her changes in mood. So then she starts taking uh, SSRI or an SNRI, serotonin, uh, you know, I'm sorry, um, Celexa, Wellbutrin, Prozac, one of these drugs, Lexapro. So now um, she's 13, 14, and uh, she takes two pills every day. This is her life. This is how she's getting accustomed to being in a semi-adult body, right, is that you take pills every day. You take one to regulate your hormonal cycle and another to regulate your brain chemistry. This becomes very normalized as a way of living. And let's say her mood kind of stables out. And years pass. And then she comes to me at 22. She's been on these medications since she was 13. So this whole developmental time, her brain is developing, her body is developing, her self-esteem, her personality, right? And it's all been under the influence of these drugs. She doesn't know herself off of these drugs. And it's become part of her narrative about herself. I am someone who has depression and anxiety, therefore I take medication. That's just ingrained in her sense of who she is. She doesn't know herself off of these medications. Um, she might also be uncertain about matters of sexuality. And it is actually known that um, hormonal birth control affects who women are attracted to. Not so much in terms of whether they're attracted to men or women, although it does have a slight impact on that. But, you know, the qualities that, uh, that a straight woman is attracted to in a man can change uh, based on how her hormonal cycle is being regulated. Um, so she comes to me at the age of 22 and and it's just her story about herself that she has depression and anxiety and she's dependent on medication. And there are some tough conversations that at some point we have to have in therapy about, do you see yourself being on medication for the rest of your life? Is this, you know, because you've grown up this way, right? Is this what you want for your future? And what's your story about yourself? And what I've discovered, and I'm not talking about any individual here, I'm talking about an aggregate of many common scenarios. It, it's often the case that in all of her years of taking medication and working with a psychiatrist, nobody has ever talked to her about the typical duration of these mental illnesses, right? So in order to qualify for a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, all you have to have is a single episode of two weeks of depressive symptoms. Right. So those would include changes in sleeping, eating, appetite, sex drive, mood, potentially thoughts of wanting to kill or harm yourself. Um, it's a psychomotor situation. Depression is it's physically slowing you down. Um, and, and this can be a response to many different things. Illness, loss, winter blues, postpartum blues, you name it. Um, but it, it only takes two weeks of feeling this way. And, and it could be two weeks of suffering immensely, 
Um, but still, nonetheless, it's relatively a short period of time in order to meet criteria for diagnosis of major depressive disorder, single episode. Um, now, it could be longer than that. There could be recurrent episodes. That would be the diagnosis, married to depressive disorder, recurrent episode. Um, and then if it persists for two years or more with no more than two months of symptom-free time during that two-year period, then the diagnosis changes to persistent depressive disorder. And sometimes persistent depressive disorder means treatment-resistant depression, depending on how much therapy and how many different medications this person has tried. Generalized anxiety disorder. In order to meet clinical criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, the time period is six months of feeling restless, having difficulty relaxing, maybe having racing thoughts, insomnia, muscle tension. Uh, and, And these can you know, have any number of origins. It could be a particularly high stress time in your life. Maybe something medically has changed that's made it harder to get good sleep. Um, You know, even a nutrient deficiency can cause a person to be more anxiety prone. So really my point is that to qualify for a depression or anxiety diagnosis, you just have to have had a certain amount of time that you've been feeling this way. And, and you could also have a diagnosis like um, not otherwise specified, right? So if you have symptoms of generalized anxiety, but it's only been four months, then it doesn't qualify for generalized anxiety and it's just anxiety disorder not otherwise specified, right? And of course, there, you know, there are other different depression and anxiety diagnoses in the DSM, but the point is that there is nothing about qualifying for diagnosis that suggests that this is going to be a lifelong thing. And... Uh, these conditions are highly treatable, not just with medication, uh, but with psychotherapy and lifestyle management. Sometimes it's as simple as building in an exercise routine or getting a light therapy box. Sometimes it means working with a nutritional counselor. Sometimes it means working on your sleep. Sometimes it means going through a particularly difficult period and making some changes that you're afraid to make like a career change or ending a relationship that's bringing you down, or, you know, sometimes it's about uh, life decisions. But the point is that there's nothing incurable about depression and anxiety. And when I talk about this sort of case example of your typical 22-year-old who's been on medication for nine years, who thinks I have depression and anxiety, the way that that patient talks about that diagnosis sounds very similar to how a patient might say, I have diabetes, right? It's as if I have this illness and it's just part of my genetics. Yes, you might be genetically prone, right? If your father and your sister and not, you know, all these people have depression and anxiety. Yes, there's a, there's a genetic component and an environmental component to that. But to me, it just seems so incredibly negligent on the part of these providers to know that there are psychiatrists out there seeing patients for years during critical developmental periods, just prescribing and re-prescribing over and over again, who are never stopping to educate their patients on the trajectory or the different treatment options, right? And then people are like, I don't know if these meds are working because like, I don't know what I'm like without them. And and typically people at that place in life, they're, they're not really suffering a whole lot, but they're also not really thriving. And sometimes they're just feeling kind of stuck and they need some change. And it's like, it's outside of my scope of practice to advise them to stop their medications, but I certainly advise, you know, I certainly provide psychoeducation on that these are not, you know, lifelong diagnoses. So 
I, I think that we can't ignore that when we're talking about something like maid and mental illness, because I personally doubt that most patients are being properly educated as to the uh, prognosis of their conditions or what all can be done about it. Well, everything that you said was based on science. The thing is that pseudoscience is usually 10 steps ahead of science. So, we have College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario saying that a person refusing consistently to take COVID vaccine is a symptom of mental illness. And therefore, they should be put on uh, either medication or counseling. Now, with all due respect to that august body, I think it is pseudoscience. If someone who has taken all the vaccines, in my case, for example, because of, you know, growing up in a tropical country, there were a lot of medications that were, I mean, vaccinations that were very regularly given, including malaria. Every year there used to be someone coming to the school and giving an injection to every child, unless the child's parent had said in advance that they shouldn't be given. So I have all those vaccines in me. Then when I went to Africa, I had to take yellow fever vaccine because yellow fever is very prevalent in East Africa. And even here, I have taken the COVID vaccine, two doses plus the booster dose. Now, if I say that I'm not taking the fourth dose, I'm not taking the fifth one, sixth one, seventh one, according to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, I have a mental illness. Is there a specific mental illness that they're attributing that to? No, they just said mental illness. That's so, that feels like an abuse of my profession. It is. That's why I call it pseudoscience. I mean, what is the basis for this ascertainment? Nobody knows. Right? Then the its sister body in the province of Quebec, the representative made the statement that deciding on euthanasia is solely a medical question. So if you put two and two together, refusing COVID vaccine too many times can get you made it. Because the doctor will decide that this person has medical mental illness, that it is incurable, and it is solely a medical decision to make and therefore nobody else gets to have a say so you get wouldn't made the patient a... have a say <laughs> well according to that doctor no who represented the but medical profession of the province i'm sorry but just to clarify medical professionals cannot force patients to go into maid they cannot but now this creates a hypothetical situation where in future they may as a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. 
Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. See, we have a lot of uh, uh, policies converging at some point. I don't know what to call it. For example, we spoke about that uh, a uh, person in Canada who had transitioned from male to female and then got a lot of physical issues because of that they became unbearable and now that person has been has received the first approval for assisted dying so let's talk about that so the person you're talking about um listeners might recognize the story uh Lois so Lois is a biological male who uh believed that he was female and went through various medical procedures and is now living with a great deal of pain and disability. I think this story is particularly important for a number of reasons, one being that Lois is a First Nations. Um, I can't remember what what tribe, but Lois um, is an indigenous person living on a reservation. And one of the many oversights that Lois has described is that the the doctors who transitioned Lois didn't ask about how this male to female transition would affect them culturally um, or you know how would impact their reservation life or, or what their own culture would have to say about this right and that was just one of many oversights um so, you know, I was there on Twitter when Lois first started talking about this. I was following Lois before Maid was brought up. And I saw the incredible outpouring of, well, I mean, it's meant to be support, but more like, no, stop, don't do it, please. And, you know, I was one of those people who was DMing with Lois trying to get him to um, at least talk to me. Um, and since then, uh, I, I know he's been quite overwhelmed, but has continued to proceed with it. So this opens up a whole nother can of worms, right? The overlap between MAID and the trans issue. And my big concern is just kind of seeing this pipeline of eugenics and euthanasia happening because, um, I, I'm very concerned about the long-term outcomes for trans-identified people. You know, we know that one study found the suicide risk, um, the risk of completed suicide was 19 times higher 
in post-operative transsexuals. Um, so, you know, I've, I've long been trying to talk about this issue of the increased risk of suicide of people who are transitioning in youth because, uh, you know, we're inducing pain and disability, irreversible procedures that can cause shame and isolation, and then um, taking away people's fertility and reproductive capacity and in some cases making people feel like um, their chances of finding a partner are ruined. So when you take away people's ability to enjoy loving, intimate relationships, to have families that give them meaning and purpose, you're taking away their physical vitality so they're not going to be able to engage in things that are meaningful and pleasurable to them, inducing all these disabilities and, and taking away all their protective factors when they were too young to even fathom what they would be facing. Um, of course, what we're doing to the 15-year-olds of today is setting up, setting them up for much greater risk of suicide in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Um, and uh, yeah, so the suicide issue is huge. And so what... What is that? What are the implications of that for a place like Canada where MAID is available? It just seems like the transgender healthcare policies of this decade are leading into the assisted suicide policies of the decades to come. That is exactly what I meant by convergence that one becomes the um, escape route for the failure of the other policy. Uh, right. Here, I mean, conversion therapy is banned and it, uh, I mean, the whole thing was introduced by the opposition party and then it got unanimous support and everybody, you know, slapped each other on the back. But what qualifies as conversion therapy? If a young person says that, hey, you know what, I'm identifying as uh, gender different from my biology if someone says to them to wait is it conversion therapy i don't know right right the rush to comply with that uh, feeling which for all we know may be fleeting at least exactly. in comparison to the rest of the life i mean if you just tell them to hold off try to find themselves Maybe get busy with some hobbies or activities and then a few years down the line, revisit the issue. Does it count as conversion therapy? I don't know. And I'm scared to find out because it has been yeah. criminalized. Let's talk about conversion therapy. So conversion therapy used to refer to some pretty abusive practices, including aversion, quote unquote, therapy, um, in which people were basically subjected to torture. So they were conditioned through a combination of things like pornography, electroshock therapy, um, nausea-inducing drugs. They, they were um, conditioned to link homosexuality with pain and suffering and disgust. Um, and the effect that this had is it did make some marginal reductions in feelings of same-sex attraction, but it did not increase opposite-sex attraction. And the marginal reductions in same-sex attraction uh, can really be attributed to trauma and dissociation, that if you're you're causing someone to link 
the sex of their choosing, in, in this case, homosexual sex, if you're causing them to link in their brain uh, those feelings of sexual attraction with all of these things that you are naturally going to be averse to, pain, suffering, nausea, fear, um, then of course it's going to have that effect, but that's attributable to trauma, right? So this is what conversion therapy used to mean. Now, these so-called conversion therapy laws, they're not just banning that. Nobody's doing that. They're, they've been redefined as something called sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts. So the acronym is S-O-G-I-E-C-E. <laughs> it's kind of a mouthful. And uh, so they've lumped sexual orientation and gender identity together and then said change efforts, which is very vague. And if you look at how the laws are written, I've, I've studied Oregon's laws. I haven't studied Canada's. And I'm actually actively working with lawmakers to change Oregon's laws. Um, it's anything that is perceived by the patient as an effort to change their sexual orientation or gender identity. So that's extremely subjective, right? Because a patient, let's say they're a minor, right? They could be very emotionally immature, or let's say this is someone who's struggling with mental illness and doesn't have good social comprehension, uh, or let's say they have a personality disorder and tend to get into interpersonal conflicts, right? You're dealing with a patient who's not well or not mature. And I'm not saying everyone who presents with this issue is unwell or immature, but many of them are, right? And they say something about their gender. Well, theoretically speaking, any amount of pushback from the therapist, any amount of questioning could be perceived by the patient as an effort to change their gender identity, right? So for example, um, I, I don't work with gender questioning teens, but if I did, you know, if a 15-year-old girl came to me saying, my name is Eli and I go by he, him pronouns and I need everyone to see me as a boy because I'm really a boy, you know, here are some things I could not say. I could not say, well, it's uh, nice to meet you. And let's say her biological, let's say her birth name is Caitlin. You know, um, you know, it says on your intake documents and from your parents that your that your name is Caitlin. And I hear that you think of yourself as a boy and you want to be treated as a boy. Um, you know, what what I see is that I see a 15-year-old girl who is confused about her gender and struggling. And I know that might upset you to hear that from me, but I'd I'd really like to get to know you and understand how you came to see yourself this way. What makes you think? that you're a boy. Um, you know, I couldn't say that, right? Because any amount of pushback that's could be perceived by Caitlin slash Eli as uh, an effort to change her gender identity. Um, I couldn't, you know, so that's where we get pushed to affirm, right? Affirm means that I would have to take the stance of, nice to meet you, Eli. Parents, tell me about your son, you know, that I have to go along with the language. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I've been thinking about how the pressure to affirm conflicts with some basic principles of person-centered therapy. So uh, in person-centered therapy, the sort of grandfather of, of that approach is Carl Rogers. And he's, you know, we all learn Carl Rogers in grad school. And he said that the three essential qualities of a therapist are empathy, congruence and unconditional positive regard. Congruence is sometimes also called genuineness. So we have to feel empathy 
and unconditionally treat our clients in a positive light, have positive regard for them. Um, and that, but that genuineness piece, that congruence, right? That we actually have to be authentic. It is the person of the therapist. It is my genuine feelings that help create the right conditions for our relationship. You don't want to talk to a therapist who's just putting on an act or being a robot, right? You want to feel like I'm with someone who, yes, I understand they're getting paid. Yes, I understand this is their job and they do this for 20 other people a week. But also while I'm here, I do really feel like they care about me. Like I feel like this is a real conversation we're having. And, you know, that lays the foundation, right? And this push to practice gender affirmation and avoid anything that can be construed as conversion therapy is um, it violates that principle of genuineness because I cannot be myself with the client. I cannot say, I see that your name is Caitlin and that, and, and it seems like you want to reject your femininity. Tell me more. Tell me what feels un, tell me what feels unsafe about being a girl. You know, tell, tell me, when did you first learn that, that being a girl is this or that or the other or means, you know, it's like any of that would be coming from a genuine place for me. That's how I would like to be able to approach that client, right? But the moment I say, all right, Eli, you're a boy, I have just violated the principle of genuineness. I am lying to my client. I am pretending not to see what my own eyes see because I don't see a boy. I see a girl who's 15, who is struggling and whose friends all are wrapped up in this ideology, <laughs> you know, in the same way that I was wrapped up in vegan ideology when I was 15, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so yes, the conversion therapy, I mean, the laws that ban so-called sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts um, do push therapists to violate our conscience and go against our, our genuineness and pretend not to see what we see. They force us to cut off our critical thinking skills and they basically allow for support one way and not the other. So if we want to take a pro-trans stance and we want to facilitate, you know, removing the barriers for, for our clients and referring them to clinics, if we want to do all that, like, the system gives us a green light. But if we want to slow the roll in any way, then we do face that fear that we could be reported to our licensing board and have to actually defend ourselves against this allegation of conversion therapy. So you have that same problem in Canada where therapists are not allowed to do their jobs, not allowed to help investigate what are the root causes of someone presenting with this feeling and how can we actually promote healthy behaviors and healthy, sound, long-term decision-making and protect children. If therapists are prevented from doing that, then we are essentially taking something that could just be transient and making it lifelong. Just like my example of the 13-year-old girl who starts taking Prozac and, and the pill, right? And then, you know, at 22, she thinks that she has depression medication needs for life. It's like that, but on steroids, literally on hormones, just that much worse, right? That something that could be just a phase to struggle through with appropriate support becomes concretized, becomes a lifelong decision, and then sets people up for feeling like suicide is their only way out. True. You know, there is this... Uh 
old Indian movie where a guy thinks that uh, he is seeing Gandhi. And in the scenes with him, they actually show someone playing the role of Gandhi. And his closest friend goes along with it. Finally, they end up at a psychiatrist and the guy says, see, there is Gandhi. He's seated on that chair. And then he asks his friend, saying, isn't he there? And his friend says, yes. And the psychiatrist says, stop reinforcing his hallucinations. Right? There are states of mind. I don't mean to say that people who feel that they are trans are hallucinating, but it's a state of mind and it has to be explored. But what you said about uh, affirmation, that is applying even in the assisted dying arena here How so? in Canada. Uh, the, the, there is an organization. It is not an official organization. I think it's registered as a charity. Uh, Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers. And uh, they have whole uh, you know, range of training materials and they hold seminars and all. And there's this guy, he's a Canadian. He lives in the US, Alexander Rikin. He did a tremendous uh, investigative piece, getting access to all that training material and wrote an article on uh, in the New Atlantic showing how all the uh, so-called safeguards are there on paper only. Their training is actually completely different. The cases that they accept are also very different. A person who is seeking assisted dying can basically doctor shop until they get someone who approves their application. There are no reviews, unlike in the Netherlands, where I think every month or every quarter, each case is reviewed by an independent panel of people who were given euthanasia. And then they will come back saying, hey, this wasn't done, doesn't ha wasn't handled properly, etc. In Canada, there is no review. And uh, in their training material, there is also a case of a lady who was suffering from disability, but her main reason for seeking assisted dying uh, was credit card debt. So at that point, you are in affirmation territory. You are not being genuine as a professional. The person says, I want to access assisted dying and you find some way for them to access it. There is even a doctor, a maid provider who is on record as saying that she drove to the airport or something to receive the patient. So it's, it's, as I said, gone completely off the rails. Look at the growth uh, in uh, assisted deaths in Canada. It, it, the policy came into effect in 2016. The first year there were 1,000 plus uh, cases. And by the sixth year, 2021, there were over 10,000 cases. So there were the rate of growth was massive. Overall, almost 1,000% uh, growth. And uh, see, one problem is that, uh, and I have emphasized this in many places, is that the whole policy is being driven in complete disregard of what the people want. So it violates democracy, basically. It's being driven by vested interests or 
interest groups that are pushing for these activists, all sorts of people. And there is testimony after testimony in the parliament, which is faithfully reported in the official publications of the parliament, showing that psychiatrists are warning against this, uh, advocates for disabled people are warning against this. We had a case of uh, a food bank uh, near Toronto, city called Mississauga where the lady running the food bank said uh, her clients are coming and asking how they can access assisted dying because their life circumstances are so bad that they are considering it. So it's uh, gone completely bonkers because it has nothing to do with what the people want. I have taken to calling our parliament a politburo for that reason because their policies and their decisions are completely disconnected from public desire. One major failure in this is that uh, the mainstream media is not doing enough investigative reporting on this. They report on individual cases when they come to know about them. Or maybe when there are hearings in the parliament and someone says something like made should be made up, uh, available to infants and then there is a hue and cry. But nobody has done a proper investigation other than and I'm not boasting here, but other than Alexander Reikin, I'm the one who dug into the official documents and details where I found that uh, it is not necessarily uh, limited to Canadians. person needs to be in Canada, but he doesn't need to be a Canadian. Death tourism? Are people flying into Canada from other countries to do this? They can they can you say this is not democratic is it your sense that the average canadian citizen opposes made it's in two levels when it comes to the you know primary category of people who are terminally ill very close to death suffering uh, indescribably then there is a broad agreement that this is a good policy to have where they can say that you know i want to leave on my terms in a dignified way. So most of the people in Canada are in favor of that. But when it comes to expansion of that policy to cases where the natural death is not reasonably foreseeable or mental illness, disability, uh, mature minors, all those categories, there is a considerable amount of opposition to that. But the problem is that the parliament is in a hurry to catch up with the court's uh, verdict. So back to this mature minors thing, when you first brought it up, I, I went on a rant just at the thought of mature minors, but I got so caught up in that that I forgot to ask the next obvious question, which is what kind of diagnoses might a so-called mature minor have that would qualify them for this? Vision loss, maybe, or maybe a severe physical illness. As of now, mental illness is not included. Disability. Vision like loss. That. I don't know much about blindness, but I do know that there are now procedures that can reverse it. Uh, I think there was this big thing in the news about how Mr. Beast helped a hundred. Uh, Mr. Beast helped a thousand people get their vision back. I don't really mm. know how it works, but. Doesn't it seem strange to determine that vision loss is 
I mean, with the, the rate of medical technology advancement, that that, that is something that is terminal? Or no, there is a Canadian journalist, uh, Rupa Subramanian. Her article starts with that case. Although the individual is a young man, I think he's about 18 years of age, but it could equally happen to a mature minor where his reason for seeking assisted dying was vision loss. So it can happen. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, clearly these are hard things to live with. And, you know, obviously I'm having a big reaction. <laughs> I'm not hiding my emotions. Uh, in response to a lot of what you're sharing. And so my bias will be obvious to our listeners and our viewers. And I don't mean, you know, through having these reactions to what I think are, you know, ethical violations, I don't mean to suggest that there is an easy way to approach dealing with conditions such as blindness. Um, I know people find ways, and I'd be actually curious with, with each of the conditions that has been deemed eligible for MAID, I'd be curious how a, a disability advocate in that community who has that condition and has learned to live with it would respond to that. Um, uh, here's another question that I want to make sure I ask you before I forget. Could psychiatrists or any kind of medical or mental health professional, could they be held liable or, or guilty of anything if they were to disagree with MAID, if they were to say, I don't believe in MAID and I don't want to refer my patients to it no matter how much they ask? No. Um, there are a lot of doctors and medical professionals who uh, have reasons of conscience not to participate in this and they are exempted. But they are still under an obligation to refer the person to another medical profession. Okay. So they cannot be uh, held responsible for refusing to do it themselves, as long as they refer the person to someone else. So if I were a doctor in Canada and I said, I don't believe in this, it violates my conscience, and go ahead and find someone else, use the internet, do whatever you want. But I, so if I were to not provide a referral, if I were not to say, go to Dr. So-and-so, but were to say, you want to do it, figure it out. I'm not helping. Could I get in trouble for that? I'm guessing here, but uh, my feeling is that uh, there is now a network that uh, directs desirous individuals to doctors who are already on board with this. So it may be a hypothetical question. If I just okay. walk into my family physician's office and were to request this, and then if you were to say no and not refer me to someone, I think it's a hypothetical question because there are uh, established channels. Okay. Um I want to get a little bit into the, the philosophy here. Um, may I ask, are you Hindu? Yes, I am. Okay. What is the Hindu view on suicide? It's complicated. Uh, Hinduism is uh, one, one uh, you know, 
constant of Hinduism is that any advice will be dependent on circumstances. We have something called dharma, which is wrongly uh, translated as religion. Religion is a very small component of dharma. Dharma is basically a set of deliverables depending on your uh, role or time. So I have a dharma to my parents, to my wife, to my children, as a neighbor, as a citizen, and as a human being. And then depending on time, for example, I'll give you an actual example here in my city. Two teenage boys were passing, saw smoke coming out of a house, went around to the back, saw that there was a fire, the lady had fainted. They broke the glass door and rescued the lady and her child. Now, usually that would be a criminal case, break and enter, damage to property. But here they were felicitated because their dharma in that emergency overrode the law. Right? Would you say that one so, way to translate dharma would be like duty? Your social obligation or your... Not not necessarily social obligation, but I, I think of it as a set of deliverables which varies depending on what role you are playing and what is the time frame involved. So, for example, okay. at one point, the Quaker's dharma was to oppose slavery, although mm -hmm. it went against the law of the land. But at other times, as a citizen, your duty is to obey the law, law of the land. So, it's a set of uh, deliverables depending on your role and the time frame involved. But uh, there are uh, noted examples in Hinduism of people who donated their entire body for a good cause. But generally speaking, uh, body is considered sacred and therefore it is not anybody's uh, right to end life. Mm -hmm. Life is sacred right from the moment of conception, religiously. So ending that life, uh, whether it is justified or not, uh, depends on the circumstances. For example, in case of abortion, if you know that this is going to be uh, gravely risky for the mother-to-be, then you can come around to accepting the decision that the child has to be aborted. So it's not a hard and fast uh, binary view. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. So uh, when I was um, about 18 to 22, I went through a very spiritual phase and I was really interested in Hinduism and I spent time with the Hare Krishnas and some devotees of Amma, um, Mata Amritananda um, Mai. And uh, we re I read uh, the Bhagavad Gita and a little bit of the Srimad Bhagavatam. 
and went to a lot of discourses and kirtans and things like that. And um, I remember in the the view um, that includes reincarnation, I, I seem to remember that this, the narrative around suicide was that if someone were to end their life by suicide, their next incarnation would be a really bad one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that's probably very overly simplistic, um, but what is the the kind of reincarnation viewpoint on um, suicide? Again, it would depend on the circumstances, because if that person's accumulated karma from past births uh, lead to that point, then there is no consequence in the next life of committing suicide mm. in this life. It depends on what your accumulated karma is, which uh, conveniently you don't know, so you are left guessing. But uh, it is circumstance dependent. But generally speaking, uh, life is sacred, uh, body is sacred, it is considered a temple, and therefore uh, the decision to end one's own life is generally uh, not regarded with favor and uh, discouraged as much as possible. Okay. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, Hinduism and, and you say that generally the body is sacred, um, what is the Hindu perspective on well, and I recognize you can't you can't represent all Hindus. You're just you know speaking for yourself. Um, and I know that within Hinduism, there's a lot of different branches. But um, if you could just share from your own perspective uh, how your Hindu philosophy sees the the idea of transgender as well as the um, the choice to medicalize one's body to try to appear as the opposite sex. How would that be viewed within a Hindu lens? Transgenderism is not uh, alien to Hindu mythology. So there are characters that uh, are transgender. One of them was a key figure in one part of the Mahabharata. The story Which of figure is two that? families. Uh, Shikhandi. His name is Shikhandi. He used to be a woman, then had to commit suicide and pledged that in my next birth, whoever is causing me to commit suicide, I'll take revenge. And then that person was reincarnated as a transgender. There is a temple to a deity called Ardhanarishwar. Ardha means half and Nari means uh, woman and Ishwar means God. So the statue, the deity is half male and half female. Then there is uh, uh, the God Vishnu, one of the trinity, Brahma, Vishnu and Mahesh. He uh, took a form of a woman and uh, at, two, at least two different occasions, he took the form of a woman. Uh, once to carry out some deceit on, uh, on demons. And the other time he actually conceived and gave birth. 
so it's not an alien concept to hinduism and uh, culturally uh, the transgender people i mean they used to be the people who are born with uh, the organs of both the sexes traditionally those are the people that we used to consider transgender i don't know what the currently acceptable term is in english well there are people who have disorders of sexual development where they um like for instance ovotestacular conditions a person would have tissues of both but there's there there are no there's nobody who can produce both re- both types of gametes both the uh male and female gametes um mm. but some people you know everyone is either male or female but some have chromosomal abnormalities or um physical differences so there's over 40 different disorders of sexual development um so sometimes those are called intersex so you're saying that culturally right. there is a place in hinduism for people with let's say ambiguous genitalia and are they regarded as um how are they regarded is there like a third term for them or there is a pejorative term in indian languages for them so i am not using it here but okay. uh, historically their role in society has changed uh, previously they used to be uh, the guards in the inner inner uh, part of the palace where the women women's quarters basically the queen and princesses and everyone else they were the last line of defense against an invading army because if the invading army makes it all the way into the palace then the ladies are at uh, risk and they used to be the fiercest of fighters so that used to be one of the you know functions that they had in society then uh, over time that eroded and uh, they mainly became involved with uh, religious practices uh, where if, if you know someone gets a child and you know after the child is born they will turn up at the door and you have to give them some money things like that so their social standing uh, went down substantially but now there is a change coming again so they are legally recognized as intersex uh, some of them have even uh, won elections so it's again changing mhm so when you when you talk about these um in the mythology like you sh- talked about shikundi and um you talked about a god being a half man half woman I, isn't there like a form of shiva as well where he's half man and half woman or maybe i'm, I'm getting not aware of that oh, okay sorry <laughs> or maybe ardhanarishwar is a form of shiva i don't know mm, okay and then you also mentioned that there's a story in, in which vishnu took the form of a woman um so these are stories of gods right so gods that represent both male and female um how does that translate into i mean i i guess what i'm having difficulty wrapping my mind around is this that that these um the stories in in hinduism go back thousands of years right um but what we know is trans in today's environment involves medical procedures that were just recently invented 
you know, the idea of um, chopping someone's body up to try to make it look different, that, um, you know, is was inconceivable to our ancestors, right? Like the people who told the stories of Shakundi <laughs> um, thousands of years ago, uh, I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're in the realm of the gods because the gods can do anything, but if you're talking about human beings and how we should treat our own bodies, it just seems like that's a whole different matter. Yeah, the current uh, form of transgenderism is also uh, spreading in India. I'm seeing some, I don't keep too much uh, in touch with what's happening in India, but I'm seeing some uh, developments taking place where uh, visibly people who are men will dress as a woman in a sari or something. So it is spreading. I don't know how much uh, acceptable it is in society as yet. And especially the surgical part of the transition. I don't know if that is happening or not. But from my outdated point of view, it would be seen as something alien. For a man to pretend that he is a woman. And aren't there, there are traditionally in Hinduism gender roles. Like in the temple, sometimes men go here, women go here. There are certain things that only men or women are allowed to do. And uh, it's my understanding that people who are more traditional in Hinduism, like uh, women don't expose certain body parts. Like, you know, the the saris are long, usually the legs are covered, usually the shoulders are covered. So would you say that if there are men who identify as women in Hinduism, does that pose a conflict for women who are trying to practice Hinduism that you know, they're not supposed to be with the men in the temple or they're not supposed to expose certain body parts. They only do those things with women. So if there's a man who says he's a woman, what position does that put them in? Have you heard of people getting into conflicts over these kinds of issues? Uh, I haven't heard about these kinds of cases. But uh, see, there is the inner sanctum in a temple where usually it's men who can enter that. But pre-puberty girls can also enter and post uh, what's it called post menopausal uh, menopause post menopausal mm-hmm. women can enter so women in the menstruating stage of their lives cannot enter so i don't know how it would affect uh, if if a trans woman uh, is trying to enter the inner sanctum i mean i'm sure this hasn't happened yet but it will at some point. Interesting. Okay, wow, we've really covered a lot of ground. Uh, <laughs> so this has been great. Thank you so much for taking your time to share your knowledge. Is there anything well, that I didn't ask me. you about today that that you think is important um, to share with our listeners before we go? Well, there is this uh, push that I'm seeing in... Uh, the United States, uh, several states actually, uh, to bring in the kind of assisted dying policy that we have here in Canada. And uh, I think whoever is interested in that uh, should, of course, listen to this uh, discussion and read my articles. Just go to my website and uh, search with the term death spiral. 
have written nine articles on different aspects of the policy. I am seeing one individual from uh, the U.S. He is said to be president of the Center for Studying Partisanship and Ideology. And uh, he is making statements. I think he is uh, trying to emerge as a as a major voice on the debate in assisted dying. And he has absolutely horrible ideas. I'm saying this in all honesty. I'll just read it out for you. The guy says, Maybe old people shouldn't all commit seppuku. This is in connection with the article in New York Times by one Mr. Narita of Japan. It was in the context of the Japanese society. But we need to think creatively about how they can have dignity in a world where many are only burdens. <laughs> burdens. With technological change becoming more rapid, they no longer even have wisdom to offer young generations. Need new solutions. And I thought maybe he's talking about the final solution. Then he says the idea that they should sacrifice something of young people isn't even being seriously considered. If nothing else, government should, shouldn't keep spending all its money on them and giving them advantages in the job market through civil rights law. He also has a blog. And then finally he says, you see this also in the ridiculous debate over Canadian euthanasia. Even those that don't want to be burdens, many people feel like we should keep forcing it on them. Like we are only comfortable in a social order where the young are burdened for the sake of the old. This thread is uh, massively problematic. And uh, basically, you know, it is also misinformed. Because in Canada in 2021, out of all the uh, assisted dying requests that were approved and carried out, 36% of the individual's uh, reason for seeking assisted dying was perceived burden on family and caregivers. So when he says that it's not happening in Canada, no, it is happening in Canada. So maybe, you know, whoever is uh, in those states, in the United States, uh, and they want to get uh, informed about this, maybe they want to read my articles and the two articles of Alexander Rakin. He's on Twitter. You can find his... Uh, articles there, where we have laid out exactly what the ground reality is. Everything else is, uh, you know, coming from there. So knowing that is, uh, is very relevant. Yeah, those quotes, it's like hard to find words to respond to that with. It, it's so, again, like this, you know, earlier I quoted Jordan Peterson that to do what's right, not what's expedient. It's it's like expediency stripped away of everything else. Just saying, well, you're old, you're useless now. Get out. Stop. You know, we've got an economy to move forward with, and and this idea that just because technology is advancing at a certain pace, yes, it's true. Old people are useless to young people when it comes to understanding how to navigate the internet or how to operate the latest apps or understand YouTube algorithms. Those are typically things that young people do not rely on old people for. But since when did those things make up all of everything that matters? Since since when does 
being adept at the latest technology constitute your entire value as a human being and constitute wisdom. I mean, it's knowledge and it's skill, but it's not wisdom. So it just seems like this uh, almost kind of sociopathic, heartless stance that if someone is not up to date on the latest technology, they don't deserve to live. To live, exactly. You know, there are so many situations where any amount of knowledge of technology is not going to help. Yeah. You have been a high-achieving uh, student. You've got a very good job and now Amazon is laying off 15,000 people. How do you deal with that loss? Someone with the wisdom can guide you. And it requires zero knowledge of technology. There are so many situations in life. Yeah. I remember when I was in Africa, one of my colleagues told me that, you know, and this was maybe 30 years ago. He said, we think that we are very smart because we have all these computers and all. But if you read the Bible, you realize that in 2000 years, we haven't been able to invent one new sin. Every sin that you see around you existed at that time also. So these are constants of... Uh, human existence and therefore you know people who have been through all that can offer you wisdom guidance support if nothing else just emotional support yes and perspective on on the very thing that we are missing the most right now which is that life is full of suffering like i was talking about earlier i feel like we're we're missing this right that life is inherently difficult and that what that's what makes it meaningful, right? Is is how you orient to that difficulty. And I feel like if if our elders could be said to have one source of value, it's it's that. And and not to say that everyone has lived a life well lived, not to say that every elder uh has all the right answers, but I would certainly hope that old people could be sources of of wisdom and guidance when it comes to the the essence of the human condition. It doesn't even have to do with wisdom. Definitely. Let's say I am feeling completely beat. The one thing that can give me mental solace is lying down with my head in my mother's lap, who is almost 90 years old now. She has to do nothing. She just has to be there. Right? That is the value of having someone around. She doesn't have to say anything. I don't have to narrate my problems to her. I just have to lie down with my head in her lap. And this is perverted hedonism, where anyone who is not uh, tech-savvy or economically productive is seen as so much of a burden that they deserve to die. And it's perverted hedonism. Well, and for a for a country with socialist healthcare policies, it's it's like it reeks of late stage capitalism. It's very capitalist in the end. This like your value rests on your productivity. And those are the things, you know, the the value of putting your head in your mother's lap. Those are the things that can't be quantified. They don't show up in the GDP. No. I was just watching, I was re-watching Afterlife. Have you seen that show? No, I haven't. Oh, it's so good. It's um, Ricky, Ricky Gervais 
plays a middle-aged man whose wife died of cancer and he adored her and they had a really sweet, special, funny bond. And, and so the whole, um, the whole show is about his grieving process. Um, and, uh, and there's a moment where he hits bottom and, uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert for anyone who's going to watch this, but it's only about two episodes in that he hits bottom and smokes heroin. Um, and he doesn't go further down that path, but when he's, um, but when he is high on heroin, the image you see is that the heroin brings his wife back and he's laying with his head in her lap and she's just sitting there looking peaceful, stroking his head. And that's his experience. Um, and so when you talked about, like, I'm, I'm about to tear up, right? When you talked about your head in, in your mother's lap, it's like, these are the things that life is really about, right? And and we share them even and especially through illness and disability and difficulty. Um, it's that that human bond, that human connection, and you know, bringing all this back to sort of transhumanism and medical technology and eugenics. It's like when I think about those um, the labs that they're inventing to grow babies in artificial wombs. It's like if you cut off a human life, human DNA, from the experience of gestating in the womb of a mother and then being born through the mother and being held by the mother. Like if you cut off our attachment that develops in the womb to the source of life, if you, if you cut that off, are we even human? Like that's the question that it brings up for me. Um, and that's a whole nother can of worms and a whole nother philosophical discussion that we can't have right now. But um, wow. Okay. This got deep. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, so um, you are, people can find your writing online at darshanmaharaja.ca. Um, what's your Twitter handle again? At Theophanes Rex, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-E-S-R-E-X. Okay. So I'll make sure to link your Twitter and um, anything else you'd like to share about where people can find you or where people can learn more. It's my website, my Twitter, and my podcast. That's where oh, I am right. online. Yes, and your podcast is called Our Canadian Journey. Okay, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.